This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to this year's final edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, even if it's the last show of the year, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making Veritas possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to both segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And what a special treat I have for you tonight. In this year's last episode. Tonight's special guest is not an armchair truth seeker. He's someone who has an immense love for this planet and its people, especially those who don't have a voice. A truth and people champion. Tonight's special guest is Max Egan from thecrowhouse.com. Closing the year in La Cache. What is in La Cache? For those of you who may not know, you see, every week I tried to encapsulate every program with a title. It was becoming more and more difficult with Max's interview because Max discusses so many topics. But I remember the first email I received from Max a year or two ago. He closed it with the words, In La Cache, which I had never heard before. Just like I closed my communication with the words, In Veritas, or In Truth. In La Cache is a Mayan greeting of wisdom. I understand in to mean I am another you, and it also means I am you and you are me. I have come to understand that this Mayan greeting is an honoring for each other, 
and a statement of unity. Ilakesh mirrors the same sentiment of other beautiful greetings such as Namaste for East India and Widakocha for the Inca. The Maya greeting in Lakesh goes beyond these unity statements. What a few understand is that in Lakesh is more than an honorable Maya greeting. It is a moral code. It is a way to live, not only with human beings, but with all forms of life in our cosmos. And when I think of Max Egan, I think of someone who lives his life in Lakesh. Max Egan will be with us shortly. And Season 4 of our USB Drive is now available, or any other season, in our futuristic metal-cased USB Drive by more than 1 and 7 shipping. And don't forget to start the year with MMS Handy. You never know when you'll need it. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And now, let's go to Max Egan. This is Cliff High, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Max Egan is a radio talk show host, researcher, artist, musician, philosopher, free thinker, champion for the truth, and a true Renaissance man. Max is the man behind the website, thecrowhouse.com, which is filled with great information for those seeking the truth. And he's also a very good friend of the show. And directly from Australia, I'm honored to have our friend Max Egan back on Veritas. Hello, Max. How are you? I'm fantastic, Mel. Thank you for having me on the show again, brother. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always my pleasure. And as you know, we're closing the year with this show we're recording it on December the 20th, the day before the so-called doomsday scenario, which I don't think anything's going to happen. And I'm so confident that our show will air at the end of the year that I decided to bring you back on the show. How have you been? I've been really, really well. Um, it's uh, It's been a fantastic year for me, actually. I've done some remarkable things in the last year, and uh, it's, it's great. And yeah, I don't think that the world is going to end tomorrow. I really don't. I think that uh, it's... it's uh, it's a very, very significant time, and I think we're going to see a lot of changes over the next 8 to 12 months, but I don't think we're going to see – it's not going to be like someone flicking a switch. I think there's going to be a lot of people in shell shock on December 22nd when they wake up and find they haven't entered the fifth dimension or something, you know? Exactly. That's what I say, that it's not going to be just an applause and, and that's it. I think if the change is going to happen, and I think it will, it will be gradual. But a lot of things, as you said, have happened – for you this year. And the first thing I want to ask you is, do you miss your anonymity? Look, you know, I, I do, actually. I, I didn't really ever want to have my face out there, and it, it kind of feels different. Uh, it's uncomfortable having my face out there. I just, I really liked the way it was. But it, it just, it happened because it wanted to happen. When I went and did the, uh, the Hemp Congress <laughs> in Slovenia, there were so many cameras there, and... Uh, it had never been about me. I'd kept my face out of the scene because I wanted people to know that it wasn't about me. It was about the message. And then once there were all these cameras there and they were filming the event at the Hemp Congress, I thought, well, I could run around and ask all of these people not to post any video of me. But if I was to do that, then it would have changed and it would have become about me and not about the message. 
And I thought, well, it, it obviously wants to happen, so I'm just going to have to let it happen. But, yeah, it's it's a shame. But, hey, that, that's the way it goes. Uh, it's, it's okay. I can, I can deal with it. But, um, yeah, I, I did prefer to be anonymous. I have to say, at the same time, I see you more out there now than you were before. Because before we could only listen to your voice, but now we see you in so many places. As you say, you were in the, in the Hemp Congress. We'll talk about that. And then all of a sudden... I see you in Gaza with uh, with uh, O'Keefe, and uh, why don't you give us a chronology of what has happened with Max Egan this year? Well, I, I left here to go to Peru to do ceremony in uh, in the end of July, and uh, I mean before that, I was just basically here doing the shows. I was I was doing what I could here against coal seam gas and the, the the problems that we face in this country. But then I got that invitation to go to Peru. So I went and did that, and uh, doing the ceremonies in Peru really set me up for the trip that I, I, I made after that because it, it gave me a really different perspective on, on how I looked at things as I was traveling. Tell, tell us and about went, Peru. Tell us about that experience. You were invited to a ceremony, I believe. Yeah, I was invited to uh, go to a, a health retreat, an ayahuasca retreat for 10 days in, uh, in early August in, in Peru last year. And uh, that, that was remarkable. I had uh, some pretty remarkable ceremonies there, and I made a real connection to the Earth Mother in one of the ceremonies. And what I saw was was what our connection could be to the planet, what our connection to Earth really is, and, and what we are actually capable of, if our highest senses are online, how we could even have the type of instincts that animals have if we weren't so locked down and locked out of our highest senses, because that's what higher senses are, that's what instincts are. Their highest senses. It's it's uh, you know animals can communicate with reality in ways that we can't, which is why they they know to leave an area before there's a disaster. And this is this is what we're capable of as well. And this is what I found out during ceremony. So I began to question what happened and why we we got in such a lockdown state. And so when I was traveling around the planet, I was I was really noticing the, the, the way people were about their specific countries. I noticed a real patriotism with everybody, especially across Europe. Europe is a, a very, very divided place because it's, I mean, ultimately it's not really that big an area. I mean, I come from Australia. You can fit all of Europe inside Australia and still have room left over. So to me, it's not a really big area. And I, I found it remarkable that, that every couple of hours traveling across Europe, you, you're in a different culture completely different um, ethnic idiosyncrasies to the culture you just left behind a couple of hours down the road. And, and this is a very, very divided state. And each each country is very, very proud of their little section of, of Europe and very much wish to promote their country. Hey, look, we're from Croatia. Hey, look, we're from Slovenia. We're from Italy, you know. And they're, they're very, very much about their, their little section. And their, their little section is basically... Um, what keeps them divided from everybody else? Even when I was in Ireland, the, the, in Ireland they were very, very proud of their culture, and they even showed me a book called the Book of Kel, which defines the Celtic culture. And I began to see that people are defined by the written word in every country that they're in. I mean, I'd sort of known this anyway, but it became starkly obvious when I saw it in Europe. You know, you're seeing all of these countries that were kept divided by their belief of what their culture is because it was written in this book to say that this is what you are, this is what makes you Croatian, this is what makes you Italian, this is what makes you Irish. It's this culture. And so I saw how we were so defined by the written word and so divided because we were, we were locked into these cultures that have been created for us. And I really began to see how the matrix works. And I started um, being taken to all these ancient sites around the planet as well. 
And I went there in exactly the right order for me to really um, see things the way I needed to. It was a very, very synchronistic journey. And I came back with a lot of stuff to process, and I've still been processing a lot of it since I got back. But um, we, we went to a, a place called Newgrange in Ireland, mm-hmm. and there's a remarkable site there which I believe was used to, to alter consciousness. I really do. And I think there's a connection between the Newgrange site and Stonehenge in England, and there's also a connection between that and the pyramids in Egypt. I think they're all linked up almost like an ancient computer, an energetic computer system that was used to, to alter consciousness. I mean, now I just began to look at all the astronomical significance of all these places as well, like in Stonehenge, it's, it's incredible astronomical lineups and things. And I began to wonder how we ever got that knowledge. And even if we had the knowledge, why would we need it? Why would we use it? Why would we need it to survive in harmony on this earth, which is what we really should be doing? You know, I began to see that we, we, do, we wouldn't need anything to do with civilization. We wouldn't need all of these astronomical instruments if we were living our proper role. So I just began to wonder where they came from and what their true purpose is. And I began to feel that there isn't any really good purpose to a lot of these ancient devices. I think that they've all been there to, they've all been put there to interfere with our consciousness. And that's some, just something that I got from the trip. And it, it was all based on really the ceremonies that started it all off in Peru because that gave me that, that different way of looking at things. I sometimes wonder what caused the connection that uh, human beings had with, with the planet. And I say this because of what you went through in, in Peru and looking back at the Indian tsunami in, in, in the Indian Ocean in, in 2004, where uh, the only group of people that survived in a certain area was this tribe. And only one person from the tribe died because it was a disabled person that couldn't ask for help. But the whole tribe went to the out up to the mountain and they all survived. What makes that tribe different than all of us here in the in the concrete world? Concrete jungle. Well, well it's because we've been westernized. It's because we've been enslaved to the written word. We've been locked into our left brain and so we're not perceiving the world energetically with our right brain. Our corpus callosum is shut down through all of the, the, the stuff that they, they do to us. I mean, there's so many things done to us, Mel. I was noticing when I was uh, videoing things around the place that every single light flickers, everything, even the street lights, the traffic lights, even the tail lights on, on cars, headlights and tail lights on cars, everything flickers, all the lights flicker. And this flicker rate is what shuts, it shuts down your corpus callosum, stops your left and right brain talking to one another. You'll find that um, when you have more, um, right brain open and you have more DMT active in your body from your pineal gland being more open because you're not consuming fluoride and, and food toxins and all of the stuff that they feed us, you'll find that you can read the world energetically. You can communicate with reality on an energetic level. And this is what I believe instincts are. And that's what many of these tribal cultures still have. That's why they're able to leave an area before a disaster comes because they can read the field, they can read it energetically, and they know that something is about to change. And all species can do this. All animals leave the area, all tribal people leave the area, and the only people who don't are those who have been westernized and, and really locked into this, this concept of the written word. So the written word is how we define ourselves. Even with things that we are supposed to know, we don't really know anymore. We, we, we know what we're taught to know. We know what, what's written there for us to know. You know what freedom is because it says here this is what freedom is. But really freedom is something that you know in your heart. You're supposed to know this, but we have these knowings taken away from us. They become defined by the written word. So therefore, 
our perception of what is possible and what isn't possible in reality is defined by the written word. So it's somebody else's idea. We don't know it anymore. We don't read it anymore because it tells us in this book that we can't. We have to go by these rules. And that's what's been done to us. You know, we've had this whole um, paper-based reality almost. That's what I call it, a paper-based reality because it's all just written down. It's all just ideas written down. We're told that this is what's possible and don't think outside the box because if you do, you'll be judged. And that's what happens to us. But you find that any culture that's been westernized doesn't have these these capabilities anymore. And there's a huge sign in that as well. I mean, when you when you look at um, how this corporate system was put in place, which goes way back to Pope Boniface in 1302, you look at how, I mean, we've had a control system for years before that, but the current corporate system, the, the economically based corporate model, which has basically uh, impinged itself upon the whole world, inflicted itself upon the whole world, um, this system was created by Pope Boniface in 1302. And one of the things that this system did was it, it, it spent an extraordinary amount of effort in wiping out shamanistic traditions, going and wiping out tribal cultures, uh, wiping out any knowledge of astrology or astronomy and the knowledge of the plants, native medicines, any of this stuff was all called paganism. Pantheism was all against the will of God, against the will of the church. And they spent an extraordinary amount of effort to wipe this culture off the face of the planet. And there's a reason for that. And there's also a really big clue because they spent so much effort on wiping this out. And the reason they did is because it is the one thing that can really, really bring this system down. So even if we, even if we, um, uh, have a civil war, even if we have a revolution, anything we do, if we pull down the rules that we've got now, and we put new ones in place, we've still got this system. We've still got a system which is completely dysfunctional, which doesn't serve the best interests of humankind at all. And many people would argue that. They'll say it does. How can you not have a system? Because they cannot imagine a world that is not economically based. It has to be like this. It has to be structured the way it is now because that's all they know. They think that's what reality has to be. And, and what I've found in Peru is that the, the, the only real way we're ever going to free ourselves in this system is to re-establish our connection with nature, re-establish our connection with the earth. And I believe that can be done through these plants, can be done through ceremonies such as ayahuasca. And I'm not saying everyone should do this all the time, but it shows you what that link is and it shows you what you are capable of. And I believe that we have to um, put the whole system, um, we have to step above it, put it all back into trust. I've, I've talked about this on so many occasions that people are probably sick to death of me talking about it, but it's got to come back to trust. We really realize that that's what our relationship with government is. We've got to rein the government in, realize it's a trust agreement. These are just public trustees. We have the power to be able to pull them back into control and then steer the system back in the direction that we want it. And once we've done that, the first thing we need to do with the system is to, is to cancel all debt, get rid of all, all, the, uh, all the debt in the world because it's all fiction, and get all the toxins out of our environment, get all the toxins out of the food and water. And over a period of 30 or 40 years, you'll find that uh, people will start being reconnected again just because we've cleaned up our environment, we've cleaned up the system, we've got this, this debt slavery, this system of fear-based mind control. Uh, you know, we've, we've got rid of that, got that out of our psyche because that fear vibration that everyone is constantly in is also a, a huge, huge factor in keeping us locked down. So that, that's the way I, I believe it has to be approached. And that's what I got from the ceremony. I just got, you know, the, the real connection that we're supposed to have and why it is so, so ludicrous to even think of 
pulling down one set of leaders, having mass arrests, and then then putting new people in place. It, it's absurd to think that we can find any escape from this reality within the parameters that have been provided for us by this system. We have to step above it. We have to really uh, start remembering who and what we are. And that, that's the reason you know, they, they spent so much trouble trying to wipe out these shamanistic traditions. That's a huge clue for people. You know, it shows how, how dangerous they are and how, how much of a threat to the system they are. I think it's because they don't want to show the magician's tricks. The, the native people around the world had that connection, and they don't want us to have that connection. But, uh, you know, you mentioned fear. To me, this is a saying that I've been saying lately. Some people say that the opposite of life is death. To me, the opposite of life is fear. If we have to live life every single day in fear, we're not living life. And take, for example, uh, uh, Iceland. You mentioned canceling the debt. Why don't we see more in the Western world? What has happened in Iceland in the past couple of years? They they canceled the debt. They forgave everybody's mortgage. They put their bankers in jail and they threw away the entire government. Why can't we just replicate what they did there? Exactly. And really, when you look at what they did and how they did it, it they basically did it from trust. It's a trust agreement. They didn't care about what, the, what rules the government had put in place. They basically said, hey, no, you guys work for us. You're trustees. You hold this country in trust for us. You've, you've got in power. You've done this over the last five or six years. You've completely destroyed our whole economy. If there's a problem, you guys fix it up because you're all in breach of trust and you're all sacked, basically, is what they did. And that's all we can do in, in every country. That's what I've been telling people for, for years now, that the only way we can fix this system is for people to understand who and what they are and understand that government are simply public trustees. That's all they are. You know, they hold the wealth of the country in trust for us. We are the nation. You know, you, you, you people, the American people are the nation of America. You know, if anything is, it isn't the landmass, it's the people that make up the nation. And those in control, you know, who perceive to be in control are simply public trustees. And that's what Iceland has done. They've, they've been a shining example of it. And of course, you don't hear anything about it on the mainstream media because they don't want people to know yeah. what, what's just happened, you know, how easy it is to actually fix things. It's ridiculously easy, Mel. It really is. People get worried and they're staging all these things and protests and the Occupy movement and all this stuff, which is all very well. It's great to have solidarity with things such as the Occupy movement, but, but what's the direction? What, what, what's your remedy? What, what do you hope to achieve from it? You know, if you don't occupy yourself, why do you need to occupy anywhere else? We already occupy the whole planet. The whole planet's occupied by people. It's just that the people don't know who and what they are, and they don't know what their relationship with government is. They think government's this big monster that's going to come and get them. But government's fiction. It, it just exists on paper. It's a paper-based reality, like I was saying. Government is just a series of rules that are written down in a book, and people with expensive suits go along with these rules. That's all it is. And you mentioned the written word. This is, this is where we take direction these days. I think, I've always think that languages have been used to, to divide the entire population of the world. And then we have the, the Gutenberg printing press that, 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 you know, we think it was such a positive thing when in the past we had things, uh, 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 knowledge disseminated via the oral tradition. Do you think the printing press in a way is today's internet? That we, we can connect with each other, but at the same time, this information and misinformation can also be disseminated. Well, it defines things as well. I mean, if, if something's defined by the written word, it takes your knowing away from it. 
in a talk I did recently, I mentioned uh, the American Bill of Rights as being a wonderful example of how this works. The American Bill of Rights is a very insidious document. A lot of Americans will probably freak out when, I, when they hear me say that. But what it is, what the Amer- if you look at the American Bill of Rights, you read it and you think this is, this is a beautiful document. This, this explains everything I should be as a human being. And the reason it does that is because what it does is it explains everything you are as a human being. But it's all stuff that you know. When you know you are free in your heart, you know you are powerful in your heart. But suddenly they get the Bill of Rights. They get everything that makes you <clears throat> a human being. And they write it down. So now it's this. It's defined by this. Everything that you know or you did know is now defined by this. So we're telling you what to know. And now we've written it down. It gives us the ability to change it and to amend it and to take every one of these rights away from you because it's now defined by the written word. And also, you know, your understanding of reality. If you only understand reality from a left brain perspective, then um, you're only understanding things from from, uh, the perspective of language. So if you don't understand the language very well, or if you don't have words in your language that explain reality properly, then how will you ever understand how reality works and what reality is? And another great example of this is the is the English word uh, or the um, Indian word, the Hindi word Dharma, which is an incredible word, which which explains you know the, the whole concept of what your your perfect place in the divine cosmic mechanism of of creation is, and and how you should do. Follow, use your life to follow the four rules of Dharma. You do the right thing in the right way at the right time for the right reason and all this sort of stuff. I could write a whole book to explain the concept of Dharma to someone, but if I'm speaking Hindi, I just have to say Dharma, and they know exactly what I mean. But we don't have words like that in our language. So our knowledge of, of reality is very limited. We find it very difficult to explain spiritual concepts to people in English because we simply don't have the words in our language that, that are used to convey these concepts. So you become enslaved to the written word in as much as it controls the way you perceive reality, because all you're thinking in is language. Your, your right brain, most people's right brain, is completely closed down, so they don't look at the world energetically, they don't look at it artistically. It's all got to be analytical, and it's all got to be defined by language. Because your left brain is that ongoing brain chatter that's always going in your head. And that's what we listen to all the time. And that, that defines us. And we begin to think that we are our thoughts because we're defined by this language. So, yeah, language is, is very, very clever. And, of course, when you've got different languages in different countries, then it's very hard to communicate for people to communicate anyway just between each country. So it, it becomes even more divided. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very interesting concept. Interesting that the word dama in Spanish means lady. And I've always wondered if we need a lady or a dama to take over the world so that we can finally start giving giving life and stop taking life. Well, I used to think that. I mean, I used to think that the, the world would be far better if it was ran by ran by females. But then I, I, I came across people such as Hillary Clinton and Julia Gillard. And I began to really question that. I don't know. I think uh, we need some divine feminine back in the equation, but I don't think we're seeing from that any of that from any of our women in politics today. Now, I want to talk about the Global Hemp uh, Congress that you went to in Europe. As you know, in the United States, finally, they're opening their, their, their eyes and their logic to the fact that the war on drugs, and I call it the war for drugs or the war for terror, is not going to work, and 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 that the state of uh, Washington and Colorado here finally are opening up this. Do you think that's the domino that's going to open it up for the entire nation? 
Well, I hope so. I, I hope it opens it up for the entire world. I mean, it's it's a big call though because there are so many of the most profitable and the most pollutive industries on the planet would be completely eliminated if hemp was made illegal. But I think this is another thing that has to come from the people. That's the only thing that's really going to do it is public pressure. And a lot of the public, unfortunately, have been educated into believing that this is a dangerous drug. It's a dangerous plant that, that does all these terrible things. And But, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, very beneficial plant. It served as mankind's companion plant virtually for centuries. And in, in its 5,000 years of recorded use, it's been responsible for zero deaths. So uh, it, it's a fantastic plant. And it was great to do the World Hemp Congress. You know, it, uh, it was badly organized, uh, but it was the first one that had ever been done. So I think you get uh, a little bit of disorganization on, on any such occasion. But it was good to, to be there and to speak to uh, the politicians and to speak to the, the, the people online who watched it. And it was, it was great to get the message out. It was quite a scathing speech I delivered, but I wasn't sure what I was going to be speaking about until the day before that I saw on the program that I was going to be speaking about cannabis in the political world. And I thought, okay, I can do that. So I, I quickly wrote a speech out that night and just uh, read a speech. That was actually my first ever public speaking event. Is I, that right? Yeah, I don't, I don't do public speaking, Mel. I just do radio shows and make films. <laughs> You're a natural. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Well, I don't know about that, but uh, I was actually reading a speech at that one because I thought, well, I'm, I'm here at a, at a congress. I better make it uh, something something beneficial and something that I know what I'm saying. I better not be off the top of my head. But uh, then I did, a, I did a talk in Zoo Studios in England after that, a couple of weeks after that, and then I did a couple of seminars in Croatia before I came home as well. So I kind of got the hang of it, then came home and did the Antheon Gaia thing. But uh, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a big public speaker. I just mainly do the radio. But it, it was interesting, and it was really good to uh, to to be invited there and to 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 get to um, to say my piece. I really hope they do legalize it because it it has to be it has to be legalized. We we have to get this plant back on the table. But again, it's got to come from the people. The governments won't do it. It can only come from public pressure. And I uh, talk about this all the time that people think that probably I'm a pothead and I'm not. I don't even smoke it, but I understand the benefits and I also understand the economic benefits for any nation and the stupidity of prosecuting people who, who use it is just preposterous. I mean, we have to look back at the prohibition times with liquor. And I wonder, Max, if the reason why they want to keep it illegal for two reasons. Number one, the, 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 the windfall of profits that the black ops and the, the, uh, CIA and so on obtain in this way. They keep it, uh, you know, tax free because that's how they, they, they make their money and they're financing some of their operations. But I also wonder if it's the hemp industry, all the products that could be manufactured, that uh, created without having to use plastic. And that would be detrimental to the, to the oil industry and to big pharma. I think that's the main reason why they want to keep it illegal. Well, yeah, that's that's a big part of it, absolutely. I mean, the plastics industry, you can make all the plastics from hemp. Henry Ford made a plastic car out of hemp in the 1950s or 1940s. Couldn't put a dent in it with a 10-pound hammer. And uh, you can make the best quality paper, the best quality textiles, the best quality building materials. You can make hempcrete, um, plastic cellulosis, ethanol. It, it improves the soil that it grows in, so there goes your fertilizer industry. All you do is plant hemp everywhere. And in a year, your soil's been been improved. 
So it, it grows in three months without any need for any special fertilizers or chemicals or anything like that. It improves the soil it grows in. It's a fantastic plant. Pharmaceutical industry as well. It, it, it cures so many things, the oil. And also you'll find that people who do have the occasional smoke um, usually wake up to the fact that this system is completely dysfunctional and they, the best thing they can do for the world is to not participate in it. So it, it kind of wakes people up to the fact that they're living in a dream world as well. People say, oh, marijuana puts you in a dream world, but it doesn't. It's just that everybody else is in the dream world because they believe this matrix is real. And, and when people have a smoke, they look around them and they go, oh, my God. What am I swimming in? What am I been participating in? <laughs> yeah. And they become, they say, oh, look, this person's now maladjusted to the system. Well, as, as said by, by Judy Krishnamurti, it's, it's no measure of, of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And that's what people realize when they smoke hemp. And that, that's another big reason why it's illegal. But you think of it, the, the oil industry, the plastics industry, the timber industry, paper industry, textiles, cotton industry, um, uh, the uh, medical industry all put out of business if hemp was legal. So there you go. The, the prison industry too. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, a lot of the people in, in, in prison are there. They're victimless crimes. They're there simply because they think outside the box because they had a smoke. You know, so yeah, you, you've really got to look at, at, at what it does. And this plan, like I said, this has served as mankind's companion plan for literally thousands and thousands of years. And it's never killed anybody. And yet we have mass promotion of pharmaceutical drugs and alcohol and all sorts of stuff, cigarettes throughout society. And here's this harmless plant, which is such a beneficial plant. And it's illegal. And we're told that it's illegal out of concerns for public safety, no less. And so I think we need to pay attention. This is a segue for something else, but uh, you know what you said about people who smoke maybe feeling awake. I, I put the the uh, analogy of a of a of, of the mice that are in a laboratory and they're in a cage and they're being exper experimented upon. But one of the my mice all of a sudden escapes the cage and says, "Wait a minute, they're playing with me." So he's outside. All the friends are saying. Wait a minute. Well, are you going crazy? Why are you leaving us? And he's observing how they're they're being vaccinated. They're being put fluoride in the water and they drink it. And they're eating food with all the pesticides and all the poisons. And uh, he's the crazy one, but he's the one looking from the outside. And those of us who think outside the box, we are the ones. It's a lonely place out there. And you know it, Max, when you're when we're in the mainstream and we're talking about this, most of the people are so programmed that they don't see it. But this is a good segue for what's happening here in the United States. And I want to spend some time talking about how it went through in Australia. I've been mean, talking about gun control. You know, some people were telling me the other day, but look at how many deaths and all of a sudden, I went to the FDA website, the Food and Drug Administration website on the United States here, Max, and I found that there are about 100,000 deaths every single year of FDA-approved drugs. That's 1 million people who die every decade. Auto accidents, deaths, 32,000. Gun crimes, 8,600. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, exactly. So there's more people who die from the FDA than there is from guns. It's uh, it's phenomenal. And, and the rhetoric from Obama the other day when he's saying, oh, look, he believes that people should have guns for hunting. And after all, that's what people have guns for. It's for hunting. Well, we know that that's not true. I mean, the yeah. American Second Amendment is very clear. People have got guns to protect themselves from rogue government. People have got guns because the American people were born, America was born out of revolution. 
and people know what it's like to be under the uh, control of a tyrant, and so the people were given arms to protect themselves from that ever happening again. And, you know, what we just saw in Colorado was so obviously a staged event. It was so obviously contrived. And the connections between the, the, the two fathers as well, the father of uh, the alleged killer at Colorado and the father of the uh, the, the, the Batman killer as well. Um, they're, they're both Connecticut and Colorado. Yeah, yeah, they're both, um, they're both, uh, um, yeah, I get my names wrong. I'm Australian. Sorry about that. But, <laughs> uh, but, um, but both start with C, so I got it, I got it close. Yeah. But, yeah. um, um, um the, both, both the fathers are actually testifying in the LIBOR legal case, which is remarkable. I mean, ha- what, what are the chances of that? That they're both witnesses in the same legal case. That's very strange. And there are reports, if you listen to the police chatter, it sounds like there were at least three people who were uh, arrested on the day at Connecticut. It sounds like there was one guy caught out in the woods, and you can actually see video of that <clears throat> from a helicopter. You can see one guy lying prone in the woods, and there's the reports of another guy lying just outside one of the classrooms that the police got, and they had him handcuffed. And then, then there was a report of the, of the alleged shooter who was dead inside. So there appears to have been three people involved in that case. And again, you know, we see a young kid who, who's like he's in, dressed up like Rambo in full body armor, gets into a locked building, a locked school, carrying all these weapons and carries out this massacre. And nobody's ever heard of his, his mother, who's apparently supposed to be working at the school as well. No one, there's no record of her actually working there, but she's apparently one of the victims of the school. So very, very strange, strange case. And of course, We've got Obama calling for gun control straight after it and restricting weapons. In Australia, it was done very easily because Australia was um, Australia was born out of bondage. Australia was, was founded as a prison colony. The people right. in Australia, <clears throat> they're kind of apathetic. I mean, they're lovely people, but they're very apathetic. They're very laid back. They feel very safe. We've got a lot of space here, you know. We go down the beach, and it's kind of a beer and barbecue type of a culture, you know beach society we work we, we, we're all good you know everything's a lucky country everything's laid back and no problem you know no worries that's that's kind of the australian attitude i'm, I'm from out- the I'm, I'm from the caribbean so i can identify yeah you know and it's, it's a culture that was born out of bondage we never really knew um freedom that we had to fight for we we, we were gradually given little bits of more freedom and we were told we were free and we believed it and then when there was a massacre here, it was the worst massacre on earth. And the first massacre in Australia and the worst single shooting on, on record, you know. So straight away they, they took our guns and the Australian people went, oh, well, gee, okay, the government must know best because they're just kind of like that. You know, I mean, they, when their blood gets riled, they'll, um, they'll stand up a little bit. But like I said, they were born out of bondage. But in America, it's different. America had to fight for their freedom. And they know what it's like to go through civil war. It's not as deeply ingrained into them as what it is in the European population, but it's still there. It's part of their psyche. It's part of their history. It's part of their education. It's part of their psychological makeup. And so it'll be a lot harder to get the guns from the American people. But so I think they're definitely going to try. I think you're going to see them really, really pushing for it with this. And I think you're going to need some very, very powerful spokespeople out there in the public domain, talking to the people and challenging these politicians. Don't let the politicians speak for you. Don't think your local member is going to speak for you. You need to go to the public meetings yourselves and you need to get up there and speak. Find someone in your 
in your uh, uh, neighbourhood who is a good spokesperson that you want to represent your neighbourhood and go to these council meetings, go to these uh, government meetings and stand up and speak because that's the only way you're going to stop this because you can't allow the American people to be disarmed because really when you look at the system, America is, is the muscle of, of the Vatican and of, of uh, Israel, of, of uh, the Crown Corporation, basically. It's, it's the global muscle. It's not, and the, the problem isn't you know, the United States. The United States is, is a puppet uh, society. It's a puppet government. It's, it's controlled by the three city states. It's the same as the Vatican, the same as the, uh, London. the Crown Corporation out of London. It's all one organization. You know? So America is simply the muscle. But the only thing that can hold this muscle back, the only people that can rein in that government or who have any pretense of, or, or hope or possibility of being able to reign in that government is the American people. And if they are disarmed, there will never, ever be a, a way to do it. At the moment, the guns kind of, it, it's almost like a Mexican standoff. You know, the government won't attack the people because the people have got the guns. It's like mutually assured destruction, mm-hmm. you know. It's kind of like that. You know, I'm not saying the people have to use their guns, but the fact that they've got them means that they can stand up against the government if the government shows itself to be as out of control as it actually is. If it gets too totalitarian, the people will resort to civil war because they've done it before. And that, that's a really big, really big deciding factor at the moment. It's just, just having them as a deterrent. And the, the American people must not ever allow themselves to be disarmed because if they do, then the biggest muscle force on the planet is, is out of control and, and is left to, to reign terror on the rest of the world, which is what it's been doing for the last 60 years. It's doing it now, even with the, the American people having possession of guns. But you and I are peace-loving, life-loving people. At the same time, we understand the repercussions of losing the guns for everybody here. Because when you outlaw, uh, it, it, when you, you make a, a, a law-abiding citizen and, and you make their guns illegal, the, the criminals are still getting those guns, automatic weapons, all those guns are going to be there. So if my family and I are threatened and I, I have no guns, the criminals know about it. I mean, in these cases, all these shootings, Colorado, Connecticut, Virginia Tech here, they always choose a location where it's a gun-free location. Take a school, take a mall, take a movie theater, take, you understand what I mean? And and right now, the propaganda machine, Max, is in full force here. Even Facebook, everybody thinks Facebook, you know, what a great place to, to socialize, YouTube, uh, Google, all these, F- Facebook especially, they're shutting down anybody's account who's talking all the stuff that you and I are talking about. Even people, some of our listeners are writing to me at our forum telling, showing me print screens. Look, they shut my account because I said that they have more than one shooter in custody. What happened to those shooters? What happens to all these so-called social networks? Don't you think they're being used against the people, Max? Well, they are, of course. I mean, they're, they're data miners. That's exactly what they are. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they really want the American people disarmed. And, and something really interesting in Australia here, when they disarm the Australian people, we don't have a lot of gun crime here anyway. It just isn't part of our culture. You know, there's just never been a lot of gun crime. But there is a certain amount of gun crime. There are a certain amount of shootings that happen every year. You know, small, you might only get, you know, 20, you know, or 10, you know, but, but there'll be shootings. 
And the, the figures haven't changed since we had the guns confiscated back in 95 or something, 94. Well, the figures haven't changed. 97, something. It was back in the mid-90s anyway, but the figures have not changed. So confiscating the guns did not change a thing. All it did was disarm the population because the, the criminals don't give their guns up. The, only the good people right. do. Only the law-abiding citizens hand their guns in. The people who really want to use them and really want to go out and commit crime, they don't hand them in. And they think, this is great. People are now being disarmed. So now when I go somewhere with my gun, no one can defend against me. Mm-hmm. So you'll see crime actually go up in states that have had their guns, that have had stricter gun laws. You find that the least crime in America even is in, in states where you're even allowed to carry a sidearm still. There are some states such as Florida, I think, where you can actually wear a sidearm if you want to. And uh, there's no, you know, very, very little crime in these states because you're not, you know, you don't want to go somewhere and commit a crime because every, there's a chance that everybody's got a gun and they're just going to shoot you if you do. So the crime rate really, really drops. And you'll see that uh, in, in cultures where there are a lot of guns in society, in some countries in, in Europe, it, it's, it's law. You have to have a gun. You have to learn to shoot and you have to own a gun. It's law. And so there's no crime in these countries. And that's so people really need to look at what's going on here. They really need to, to look at the reverse psychology that's being used on them. And you're right. They always use schools. They always kill little children because that's what tugs the heartstrings and that's how you get these laws through. People, people have to pay attention to what's going on, though. They must not allow themselves to be disarmed. Yeah, in Switzerland, it's an obligation to own a gun. But here in the United States, the way I'm seeing it, and I even discussed this the day of the shooting, the day before I recorded a show, before this happened, and I was talking about how they continue with these false, to me, it's becoming more and more false flag events. All the fingerprints of another 9-11, if it's not because a false flag takes us to new wars, it's a false flag to disarm the population. And now they realize that by using statistics, they're not going to win. So what they're doing now, they're using emotions. When you kill a child, you basically put a dagger through the heart of an entire nation. And now people act irrationally and they will clamor for, for protection. And that is my concern, Max. Oh, yeah, yeah. They clamor so they can protect our children. But really what they're doing is they're removing their own right to protect their own children from, from their own actions. That's what they're doing. You know, if they want to protect their children, then they need to have the means to stop perpetrators, you know. But, you know, it's such a classic setup. You know, we've got a young kid who took his parents' guns. It doesn't matter. He stole his brother's ID and he used his parents' guns. So it doesn't matter, you know, about restricting the age of what they can buy them and stuff. You know, if you're a parent and you've got a gun in your house, well, your child may go and kill all these people at school. You know, they put all this, this in people's minds, you know. Very, very clever. And uh, it's it's so contrived, and he, he, everywhere, like even in Syria recently, we saw that 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 ridiculous statement that that guy wrapped up in a in a in a, a towel on his head, saying how they're going to use chemical weapons against the people. You know, look, I've just killed these these mice, you know, or these ducks or something in the uh, in his cage with this chemical weapon. So mm-hmm. staged, such such an obvious false flag attack, you know. Yelling out Allah is great and all this sort of stuff, doing everything they can to vilify the Arabs and say, look, we're going to use chemical weapons. We need the United States to intervene in Syria. A false flag. It's an absolute false flag. It's so obviously a false flag. I mean, America has been trying to find a way in there and now they've got this. And it's the same as what we saw in Connecticut. It's the same as the Batman shootings. These are all false flags and they're, they're so obviously false flags. And, you know, people... 
people. And even while I was in 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 Gaza, I did a, a review of that uh, with, with Ken O'Keefe. We did a review of uh, Michael Clawson, the Jewish lobbyist, saying, "Hey, we're going to stage a false flag <laughs> event against Iran." By the way, telling I, you what they're going to do. I love that video where you speaking of the clips and you talk and then you put the clip back. That was great. Well, it needed to be done. We saw this. Ken and I saw this thing, and we just couldn't believe it. And Ken said, well, it's, it's kind of refreshing honesty, at least, you know. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we just thought we've, we've got to say something about this. I mean, if, if people can't see what's going on, I guarantee you we're going to be seeing all these false flags coming out now. And here, here we go. We, we see the, the Syria thing. We see this in, in Connecticut. I mean, what else are we going to see? They're telling you that they're doing it now. And they're, they're so blatant about it, they're even having these, these public lobbies and videoing it and telling you what they're going to do because people, people just don't notice. It's just what they do, and people just don't notice anyway. So we might as well tell you, what are you going to do about it? What's anyone done about it since then? Has Patrick Clawson been arrested and, and questioned and, and had put on public display? Has he been grilled on some talk show? I mean, no. Nah, everyone just, oh, well, okay, that's what they do, you know, so... People, people need to pay attention. Absolutely. And I'm so curious to ask you more about what you went through in Gaza. And honestly, I felt like my brother was entering to the war zone. And I was concerned about your safety, Max. One day, there was, a, there was the, uh, uh, during the, the exchange of fire between Israel and, and Gaza, uh, you were there trying to get in. Tell us, how did this even start? How did you, what was your motivation to get into Gaza? Well, I just wanted to meet the people. I really wanted to see what it was really like uh, on the inside. And, I, you know, we've, this is a place we've heard about our whole life. And I was there in, in England, and I'm with Ken O'Keefe, and Ken O'Keefe has been to Gaza a few times. He's actually got the key to Gaza City. And I'm thinking, well, if anybody can get me into Gaza, it's this guy. And I'm, I'm so close. How often am I this close to Gaza? And people are going, what do you mean close? You're in England, you know? I'm going, yeah, but I'm from Australia, so it's, <laughs> all right. When I'm in Europe, everything's close. Yeah, I mean, Gaza's is you know, Egypt's three hours flight from from the UK. I mean, it takes me four and a half hours to fly across Australia for God's sake. So, um, yeah, everything is close. And so, yeah, we went down to to uh, to Cairo. We went across the Sinai, and we got into Gaza. I actually put up a video clip called 10 Days in Gaza." which uh, shows what we did while we were over there. We, we helped build a schoolroom for the Samuni children. But I just really wanted to go there, and I wanted to see what the people are really like. And I met some wonderful, wonderful people in Gaza. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful place, and it's, it's got some real, real energy about it. There's, there's something really, really remarkable about Gaza Strip, and you can see why the people want to hold on to it so, so much and, and why there's you, – you'll never, ever – um, stop the Palestinian people. You will never, ever get these people to back down. They will never back down. This is their home. And uh, they're, they're truly, truly wonderful people. They're so friendly and so generous and, and so kind. Everywhere I met, I, I met wonderful people. And uh, I made a real connection with a lot of the people while I was there. As soon as they started bombing, um, again, I, I wanted to go straight back there. I was just so concerned about my friends. But, of course, I couldn't get back in it was very very difficult to get through the borders i mean we snuck in anyway the first time we went there uh ken and i we kind of snuck in we didn't get permission to go in it was kind of a bit of a no-no and we got a bit of a slap on the wrist while we were there for doing it but i'm glad we did 
And I got to speak at the university while I was there. I got to um, speak with the guys from Press TV. Um, got to build a schoolroom for the Samuni children. Made some wonderful, wonderful friends. And we had a bit of a, a bit of a excitement as well. I mean, we got detained on the border on the way out. We had our passports confiscated for five days by Hamas while we were in there. That was kind of interesting. You know, it's strange being in a place like Gaza and you've had your passport confiscated. Oh, yeah. And you're just kind of there thinking, I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. I wonder what's going to happen next, you know. And, uh, I mean, because you know, Hamas, I mean, you, you've got to wonder what they're going to do from one moment to the next. And so it was very interesting. We actually, we didn't go through in any of the official tunnels. We, we, we kind of got stuck in, um, by some rebels through a rebel tunnel. So it was, was a very, very precarious entry. We were kind of underground for over an hour, crawling through a little, little dirt tunnel with, with no walls, no shoring. It was at 50 meters underground. And, uh, over an hour we were underground. And that was, that was pretty sort of freaky. And um, but the, again, I, I didn't have any fear of the whole thing. I just when I was sort of looking at the tunnel, I, I, I remember thinking, I, I wonder if I'm crawling into my own grave. <laughs> but uh, I thought, well, if I am, so be it. I'm here. This is obviously the way I'm supposed to go. So I just I just went for it and went through this tunnel, and uh, it was uh, it was remarkable. When we emerged into Rafa, it was the most. Uh, I mean, the buildings were just riddled. I, I mean, riddled with with bullet holes. Huge, huge bullet holes, craters, just destruction everywhere where we came in. And uh, I thought, wow, Gaza Strip, here I am. It was, it was surreal. And, um, that was about an hour's drive from, from Gaza City, a place called Rafa, which is a very dangerous place. I mean, that, that was, uh, the, the freaky part really was the going across the Sinai because the Sinai is a very lawless area and then arriving into Rafa and getting from Rafa to Gaza City. That was, that was the, the uh, precarious part, but again, I didn't, I didn't have any fear of anything that might happen. I, I was just like, so be it. This is, this is what I'm doing, and it's all good. Whatever happens is, is all good. It, it doesn't matter. You know, there's a, there's a purpose to what I'm doing, and I don't know what that purpose is, but there's a purpose to it. And it was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. It was really the highlight of the whole trip. I mean, everywhere I met, everywhere I went, I met, I met beautiful people. But going into Gaza and actually being in Gaza for 10 days was, was remarkable. And seeing the conditions that the people are forced to endure there as well. I mean, building school desks for these kids, we couldn't get nails to build the desks. People can't get concrete to do building. You know, the only place they can get concrete is to go into the buffer zone and, and grab concrete blocks of the buildings that the Israelis have shelled and take them back and bash them up with a hammer and powder them again and reuse the concrete. But, of course, you get shot at if you go into the buffer zone, so that's very difficult. Um, but the, there's kids that go in there and just collect rocks and collect concrete blocks and old bricks and stuff so that they can crush them up to use them. And people have salt water showers. There's, there's little 1,000-litre water tanks on top of the houses. They're not allowed to have 4,000-litre tanks. They're only allowed to have 1,000-litre tanks of water, and they're full of salt water. Because there's no fresh water is allowed to flow into Gaza. All the water that people drink is bottled water. You can't drink the, uh, the water out of the tap. And it's, it's salt water anyway. And that's what you're showering in. So it's very difficult to get clean in salt water. Most of the people's teeth are brown because they're cleaning them in salt water. Hmm. And, uh, it, the, the, uh, the electricity is off for eight to 16 hours a day because they can't get parts to fix the electrical plant. Um, the town stinks a fair bit because the sewage treatment plant is broken and they can't get the parts to fix that. 
that's actually overflowing into the ocean now. And so the beaches are starting to get quite polluted and people are swimming in the beaches, you know, kids there, families swimming on the beaches and the sewage is flowing into the beaches because the, the Israelis won't allow parts in to fix the, uh, the sewage treatment plants. If it's left the way it is, in another 10 or 15 years, you won't be able to live in Gaza. It'll be too polluted to live in. And that's what they're doing. It's kind of a slow kill. They've, mm. like, they've stopped all the fresh water from even flowing in there, all the, re- the creeks or anything. that It's all dammed off. Nothing can get in there. So it's, it's very, very difficult for the people in Gaza. And there's over 800,000 children in Gaza, a population of 1.6, 1.7 million people, over 800,000 children, well over half the population is children. And of the adult population, half of them are women. So there's 1.2 to 1.3 million women and children in Gaza. So how, how can you wage a war against this area? This isn't a war. You need two armies to have a war. This is a, a population of, of impoverished women and children mainly, and, and, and they've got no ordnance, no, no guns, no, well, they've got light, light guns, you know, light, light ordnance, light weapons. They've got no tanks, no navy, no army, no air force, no, no nothing. You know, no, no heavy ordnance, no, no anti-tank guns, no, um, you know, anti-aircraft guns, no bombs or anything like that. And, and you're waging a war against these people. It's not war, it's genocide, it's ethnic cleansing. But uh, it, it's a very, very sad situation. And the world needs to pay attention to it because what we really see in, in Gaza and in the West Bank as well, I mean, the West Bank is actually worse than Gaza. It isn't as polluted as Gaza, but there's checkpoints everywhere and it's, it's so, so controlled. At least- that, that's, the, that's the future of the world if, it, if we don't pay attention. Well, it is. It is. Because the, the, what, what we've got here is a dispossessed people. See, Palestine, I mean, they're lucky they just got recognized as, as a non-member state status for the UN recently, which is, is good and bad. It will be good if they use it to mount legal challenges, but bad if they just accept their statehood and move forward because it will mean the loss of Palestine if they do that. But what you have is a, is a dispossessed people in Palestine. And Gaza, you're going to see that the Gaza is the way of the world. If people don't pay attention to what's going on in Palestine, then it will be the way of the world because what Israel has done here is it's created a very effective method of surplusing and warehousing human beings. That's something that became starkly apparent while I was there. It's the surplusing and warehousing of human beings that is the real issue. And what, what they've presented to the world with this situation is a workable model for surplusing and warehousing human beings. So as you get things like the carbon tax here in Australia, and you're seeing more and more people becoming dispossessed because of this carbon tax, because prices are going up and up and up. Now, of course, I'll tell you, oh, the carbon tax doesn't affect the little people. It's only big companies. Well, that's great, but the big companies always pass their um, their, their burdens and their bills down to the consumer, don't they? Because of course. That's what you are, of course. You're a consumer. You're not a human being. You're a consumer. And so you've got to pay the price. And so you find the electricity bills are going up and people are becoming more and more dispossessed. And as these people get dispossessed, well, here we have from Israel a workable model for surplusing and warehousing these dispossessed human beings. And, of course, the carbon tax will go out. It'll go across America. It'll go across England. It'll go everywhere because they try these things in different countries and they find what works and then they extrapolate it out around the rest of the world. That's why the world needs to pay attention to what's going on in Australia. They need to pay attention to what's going on in Gaza, pay attention to what's going on in Croatia, pay attention to what's going on in Greece, and please pay attention to what's going on in the United States at the moment 
because you know, this is very, very dangerous. And what people also need to pay attention to is the remedy that was just found by Iceland that you mentioned before. And they could also pay attention to Cuba. Here's what a country can do. I mean, Cuba's virtually a garden now. Everything's edible in Cuba. They're vacant, lots of full of vegetable gardens and fruit trees. And because they've disconnected from the rest of the world, and they've shown here they've got a thriving community in Cuba. So we can do this. We can, we can disconnect from the system the way Iceland did. We can turn our countries into gardens the way Cuba has done. And we can, we can turn this whole thing around. But we have to find who and what we are in, all, in order to do it. You, people have got to understand the power that they've got. And they've got to understand who and what they are and that, that government isn't real. It only exists on paper. It's just a set of rules. It's, it's, a, it's a fabrication. It's, it's mind control. That's all it is. I mean, gubernamente, control mind. That's what it means. Government is simply mind control. And we have to start paying attention. We've got to get our power back. We've got to realize they're just public trustees. And we can, we can change things very, very easily if we simply stand together and do it. The, the, the whole definition of the root of the word government, as you said, meant and govern, government your mind. Was Israel ever there to harass you? Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Santos Bonacci, and you are listening to Veritas.